Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, Red Sea Catholic Radio listeners. This is Thaddeus Romanski, your Director of Education and Development here at the Red Sea Apostolate. So glad to be with you. Maybe not the voice you were expecting because this is normally Pam Marvin's segment on this week of the month, but I am filling in for her and so happy to be filling in for her and be talking to you, be bringing you an author that we've had, this is going to be his third time on in the second part of the show. He's a good interview. Yeah, he is a highly knowledgeable author, uh, Gary Mashuda. He's been on to talk about his books, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, and also Hostile Witnesses. This time we're going to be discussing his new book from Catholic Answers called Revolt Against Reality. But the reality of things yesterday was that we had an outstanding Woo-hoo! day of Brazos Valley Gives, mm-hmm. and in light of that, we want to give thanks for the tremendous outpouring of support we had in Brazos Valley Gives. We want to give thanks to St. Joseph, the protector of the Universal Church, with our St. Joseph segment right now. So let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain for me all the knowledge and love of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and finally to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. And St. Joseph, please pray for us and please continue to protect and foster the growth of Red Sea Apostolate. Amen. Amen. Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he has. He has. Yes, he has. We'd (laughs) like to remind you that making this prayer during the year of St. Joseph carries with it a plenary indulgence instead of the usual partial indulgence. A plenary indulgence is the complete remission of the temporal punishment due to sins that have already been absolved through the sacrament of confession. Remember, you got to go to confession first. You can't just get the the indulgence is not a get out of jail free card. (laughs) You can offer this indulgence, especially for a deceased family member's release from purgatory. And that's going to be the special devotion of next month, November, the month of the holy souls, the month of the dead. November is also benefit dinner time. But let's talk about some more with Brazos Valley Gives before we move on to updating you on our benefit dinner. Dennis Maka here in the studio with me on the buttons. Dennis, our executive director, tell us about your impressions of Brazos Valley Gives yesterday, sir. It was a whirlwind day. It was an 18-hour day of giving from, uh, well, we started our, our effort early in the morning, but and it lasted up until 11 p.m. You were kind of out of breath by the end of the day yesterday, you I said. I was pretty tired, pretty tired. A couple of long days in a row, but, you know, it's that time of year, so thanks be to God we have that ability to do that. And and as I say often, I'm still vertical. I'm not dead yet. So. That's right. 
We uh, had five thousand dollars of matching funds from yes. a very generous uh, Brazos Valley supporter of ours, mm-hmm. and we came thanks through. To thanks to you, supporters, we had twenty six donations. We raised five thousand nine hundred and twenty four dollars and thirty three cents in contributions mm-hmm. to not only match that match, but go beyond it. Indeed, indeed, and I. I would suspect that we will probably get one of the uh, one of the bonus hours, either a five hundred or a one thousand dollars. So that will increase that That'll amount. Be awesome. Yeah, because they had different competitive giving challenges, and we've won one of those the last two years. And last year we were one of the lucky tickets, golden ticket, golden winners. ticket. And so that added what was another twenty five hundred bucks to yeah, it. I think so. It was pretty cool. So uh, they've got like five of those this year. So if we we get that ticket drawing again. We may have some things thrown at Say us. Say some by prayers other, to St. Joseph that we uh, profits. come through with those. Yeah, so sweet. It was. It's a. It's a great opportunity given to many nonprofits in our area by the Community Foundation of the Brazos Valley. And we, we want to thank them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Patricia Gerling, uh, a good faithful Catholic, but also. Uh, their executive director of the Community Foundation of the Brazos Valley. Mm-hmm. She is um, mm-hmm. she's a dynamo, and they, I think they raised for nonprofits close to or over a million dollars last year, and it looks like they're going to do that again this year. Yeah. So uh, it's just a day of giving is what it's centered around, and so you know, normally we wouldn't. I don't think we would have it so close to the benefit dinner time, but COVID pushed our dinners to, to different times, and. You know, and and it just happens. So and we've been having our benefit dinners in the fall for a long, long time. Well yeah, here, before this here, came around, and COVID moved the the KYAR benefit dinner uh, a bit. So, um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But yeah, uh, the the giving from the people that that gave from their heart. My gosh, thank you so much. And uh, um, it really wasn't a, a scare. Uh, we know how faithful y'all have been, and y'all met the match now three years in a row. This was our most successful Brazos Valley Gives. We exceeded our best year, which was the first year, 2019. We now have a new record of contributions from mm-hmm. you, our loyal and faithful and sacrificial yeah. listeners. So thank, we you thank you so much for the, the yes. love. Thank God for each and every one of you. Um, mm-hmm. So... Successful day all around. Um, and I mentioned the benefit dinners. Gosh, those are coming up. They are indeed. And, uh, you know, we're not here to push, 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 push Red Sea Catholic Radio, but my gosh, people, if you've never been to one of our benefit dinners, it is, it's not just a benefit for us. Let me tell you that. Because the people that come, <laughs> they they thank us for having it, you know, it, which is kind of unusual. You know, benefit dinners are sometimes like, oh, I've got to go to another benefit dinner, you know, that kind of thing. So... People come to our benefit dinners and have a pretty much a, a rip roaring good time. They have some great fellowship, great food, uh, great uh, great drinks that that we're going to be serving, and a great talk and a great presentation. We've got two dynamos in this year. Um, some of you really like the Catholic Man Show; it's mm-hmm. catching on like wildfire, and mm-hmm. uh, we're bringing both those dudes in this Adam year. Adam Minahan, David Niles, coming down from. Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have a special connection to the Diocese of Tulsa yep. through the Brazos Valley because that is the Episcopal See of Bishop David Condola, formerly of St. Mary's Catholic Center. Yeah. Good friend to, to many of us here. Good friend to Red Sea. He is. He is. And so, uh, you know, David is, sorry, Adam. Adam. 
always switch those guys up uh, in name only. Adam is the communications director for the Diocese of Tulsa now. And so, yeah, just great connections there to the Brazos Valley. And they're very excited to come in and be not only our presenters, but our MCs. Mm -hmm, Because they do that kind of work, both of that kind of work. I don't know what to predict. I may give them a script, and I don't think they're going to stick to it. So it's going to be an unpredictable evening. But what we do predict, it's going to be a lot of fun of great family and friends and fellowship as it has been for, for many years in both the Waco area and here in Bryan College great Station. Great conviviality, oh, great yeah. food. Just, yeah. Yeah. Come early at six, 6 o'clock. We'll have a meet and greet for uh, about an hour, meet yeah. and mingle, however yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. It's just cocktail hour if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, but mm-hmm. it's just a, a great time to catch up with, with friends. And, uh, you know, we haven't been doing that. At the Brazos Center, right? The Brazos Center here in Bryan College Station. The one right off the highway behind uh, Cracker Barrel. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not the Expo Center, but it's the Brazos Center on Thursday, November 11th, Mm -hmm. Friday, November 12th, back to back, first time ever. Yep. It's going to be at the uh, West Knights of Columbus Hall, just north of, of, (laughs) north of West. That sounds kind of funny. On Jerry Moshek Drive there. So many of you in that area know where it's at. We still have room. We got about a little over 50% capacity taken. We're kind of uh, right on track, in, wouldn't in, you say? With, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, people always wait for the last two to three weeks to, to finish registering. We're over 60%. To, you know, it takes time for people's calendars to come together. People have a lot of irons in the fire. We still know? have room, but that will be taken up in the blink of an eye. Yes, so if you're going to get a table, we've had many of you say to us on a regular basis, you know who oh, you are. Oh, I got to get that table when mm-hmm. they see us in public mm-hmm. and like, Oh, <laughs> I, I see you. I've, I haven't forgotten. Well, you better not forget. Cause if we will, we will fill up the rooms li- like we have. You know, I guess we could, years. we could go ahead and just thank some of our table sponsors who already have sure purchased tables. So here for the Brazos Valley, we want to thank Dr. Frederick Tan, Marvin and Elaine Welch, Downtown IT, Borsky Homes, Fast Signs, MG Cangelosi, University Dental Associates, St. Joseph Catholic Church, uh, the Nobles family, Father Will Rooney's family, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Rosary Guild, the Eubanks Production Services, St. Joseph Catholic School mm-hmm. has also put in for a table, the Pettibon family, 40 Days for Life, South Construction, American Heritage Girls, Troop Tex, TX1860. Woo! RC Activities Incorporated, St. Anthony Catholic Church, the Hartle family, the Bame family. Wow. And that's just locally that's here. That's just KDC. And so did you You have, I have KYRs pulled up. Yeah, go ahead. I also have it, but you go ahead. All right. So in, in, in uh, the Waco area, Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men, we have Darren Sincouli with the Sincouli family. We have the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, and Sisters of the Morning Star. Mm-hmm. So we've got to just I two. hope there. I hope that whole table oh is packed with religious sisters. Goodness. That would be amazing. Uh, I would just. I'm really looking forward to that. I, I can't wait to meet them. Uh, Saint Vincent de Paul in West Waco Optical, Sakura Family Ford, mm-hmm. Darren Sleva, Rams Mechanical Services, Catholic Daughters of America, Sacred Heart Council Number Eight Twenty Nine in West. St. Mary's Catholic Church in Waco, St. Louis Catholic Church in Waco, the Knights of Columbus Council 2305, Michael and Luz Cosby, uh, St. Philip Knights of Columbus, KJZT number 11 in West, St. Martin of Tours, 
So those are a lot Woo. of tables, plus all the individual oh, seats yeah. that have been bought. So we're not gonna we don't have time to go through all the individuals, but let's not for we're not gonna forget the individual seating. I mean that's in, no. that's a key. Yeah. So yeah, we've got seats available for twenty five bucks. Table sponsorships that start at five hundred, and those are just uh, I support you, Red Sea Catholic Radio sponsorships. So uh, man, we've we've got so exciting news, and we have exciting news that we're gonna (laughs) be rolling out uh, three different things that we're gonna be talking about at these benefit dinners. Three things that you guys don't know about yet that you're gonna want to know about, and that you're gonna want to uh, know more about. Yeah, so. New people have been on board to Red Sea that you haven't met yet. Oh, my gosh. Just so much to reveal at this benefit dinner that we're not going to tell you now because you got to come. Mm-hmm. you got to come to that benefit dinner uh, on uh, the November 11th. The Catholic Man Show. We, the thought they were, we just thought they were great. They're a new uh, member of our lineup. Also, we're honoring St. Joseph. Cheers to St. Joseph is our mm-hmm. theme. It's the year of St. Joseph. Uh, what better way than to have the Catholic men of the Catholic Man Show there to talk to us about St. Joseph. And I wanted to to say, mm-hmm. do you know why the lily is associated with St. Joseph? St. Joseph? I do, but I want you to say it because I don't have it in front of me. I don't have okay, it memorized. Okay, so the lily <laughs> is associated with St. Joseph because there is an ancient tradition that he was chosen from among other men to be betrothed to Mary because his staff blossomed like a lily. And there's also a passage in the Bible, the just man shall blossom like the lily. And that has been applied for centuries as a reference to St. Joseph. And so that's, it's, it's nice. His holiness, it's his justice, um, his uprightness, his virtue that St. Joseph has the lily. And so look for the lily at the St. Joseph <laughs> at the Cheers at the to Joseph dinners. benefit dinners. Yes, indeed. So we'll all raise our glass in Cheers of St. Joseph mm-hmm. because this has been a beautiful year. Man, it's been both a challenging and a just hold, buckle your seatbelt because it's been the Holy Spirit's been working over time it and, sure has. and really pushing the limits of what we have even thought about doing here yeah. at Red Sea. So we're so excited to be able to share that with all of you when you come. Um, and then, then soon thereafter, we're going to be able to make that more open to the entire mm-hmm. public. So mm-hmm. so coming up next, Gary Mashuda on the other side, talking about his new book, Revolt Against Reality. Stay with us, folks. Don't go anywhere. Woo-hoo. Buckle up. Red Sea Roundup. All right, you're back on Red Sea Roundup here on Red Sea Catholic Radio. You might be listening to us at KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley or KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, possibly KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. We are live this morning. I am Dr. Thaddeus Romanski filling in for Pam Marvin. 
Very pleased to be bringing you our guest this morning, Gary Mashuda, author of a new book through Catholic Answers Press. If you uh, get interested and want to ask him a question, as you're listening, you can call at 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. Gary, thank you so much for being with us this morning on Red Sea Roundup. Well, it's an honor to be back again. Uh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I think you're in rare uh, rare company uh, being this your third time on the show. I don't think there's many people that have been on Red Sea Roundup three times. So you must be doing something right, at least in our eyes. Or you have incredibly bad taste. So it's <laughs> 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 um, You are coming from the great state of Michigan. Uh, Michigan football is doing pretty well this, uh, this year. Is that a good thing for you, or are you a, a Sparty? Yeah, uh, I'm more of a Spartan fan, I guess. Okay. You know, I I don't, I don't do any controversial stuff like sports. I just do religion. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Keep it, uh, (laughs) keep it right down the middle. Exactly. Well, you are the author of a number of books. Uh, I mentioned them on the other side. Why Catholic Bibles are bigger. Making sense of Mary. uh, Hostile witnesses. How the enemies of the church prove Christianity. You have a column for Michigan Catholic newspaper behind the Bible, and you actually are a radio hand yourself. You have host your own show daily, right? Hands on apologetics. Yeah, Monday through Friday on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and uh, interview uh, apologists around the country, and we just do deep dives into apologetic topics. So it's been a lot of fun. Go ahead, Dennis. I see you itching over there to talk. I'm grabbing the mic. Yeah, Virgin Most Powerful Radio was started up online by Terry Barber and uh, Jesse Romero. And they've got several shows of their own, including yours, but they also have a show that we carry in the Palestine area, the Bishop Strickland Hour. So that's his diocese. We carry his show and we, we produce that, reproduce that from them to our listening audience there in Palestine. So great couple of guys. Um, Gary, tell us a little bit about, uh, st- standard interview question here. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to write this book. What led you to write this book after, um, really writing books that were more strictly about, uh, scriptural interpretation, defense of the Catholic canon, um, using the, the hostile, maybe, maybe it was hostile witnesses that led you into, to writing this book. Tell us about what drew you to re to write revolt against reality yeah well um well what started it was the, the bizarre you know chaos and incoherence that we live in today that just seems to get worse and worse mm-hmm. and uh so you know with my research with hostile witnesses and apologetics in general i knew there were some things some uh causes that that came uh from middle ages even earlier earlier than that mm-hmm that was kind of uh, showing its symptoms today. So I thought, you know, why don't I try to back engineer this and, and look for, you know, the immediate causes of the things that we're experiencing today and then keep tracing them through history mm-hmm. and see whether we can, you know, I can kind of trace the trajectory of uh, what was going on. You know, they say to write a good murder mystery, you start off, writing about the murder, you know, having that completed. Right. And then you go back and you read, do the rest of the story up to the murder. So that's kind of what I did, was I kind of back-engineered into history um, the, the chaos that we live in today. It's really the end result yeah. 
uh, some really important errors that happen, and we're kind of living it out. You know, Aristotle says a, a small error in the beginning leads to a large error in the end. And, uh, and unfortunately, we're kind of at the end of this uh, trajectory against reality. Yeah, so let's talk about that and, and spend maybe five minutes or so. You identify in your book that there are these five acts that you call them, or five historical eras. Now, this is really an impressive book. It's just under 300 pages. And ladies and gentlemen, this book goes from 2020 all the way back to 428 BC. And it does it uh, quite compellingly. It's, it's really, I would say, an intellectual history more than intellectual and social history of how we have arrived at a society and a culture that, as you so pithily say in the beginning of the book, uh, is kind of ruled by imagination being transformed into insanity. Um, Elaborate on that and then maybe lay out briefly what are those five eras of history that you identify in the book to to get us started. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the definition of sanity is where what is known corresponds to what is. And what is, you know, the core of reality, the source of reality is God himself. And so when God creates everything, it's, it's his wisdom creates, and therefore we can know God through his creation. And there's this um, symmetry. So by knowing God, knowing creation, we know reality and we're sane. And basically what the book chronicles is man's attempt to shrink back from reality, you know, from God himself, and especially the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, try, and you know, it, whatever's not real is imaginary. So in a sense, what we end up in is living in a, a world of imagination that doesn't correspond to how things truly are. And, you know, I could go through listing all the, I mean, all you have to do is just, read the newspaper or go on a news feed, and you could see this weird incoherence where uh, reality is kind of dismissed for whatever we will, whatever we want it to be. And so uh, basically, like you said, I, I kind of break it down into epics, just because first we have to understand what reality is and what God is and what the incarnation is. So I, I start with the very beginning, with the serpent's lie. Mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting because the seeds of the things that we're living through today is actually there in the lie. And then I trace, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve. I, uh, and I show God's uh, road back kind of slowly re- rehabilitating humanity through mm-hmm. the Jews. Ultimately, the revelation of Christ, which is the big unifying moment of human history, where heaven and earth are joined, you know, we're joined to each other in one body, and so that's the second epic. Uh, we have the incarnation, and then we start having that shrinking back from the, the, the blinding insights of the incarnation hmm. with Christological heresies. That's the second one. And then from there, there's ecclesiastical revolt with the Protestant Reformation. And then then there's man's search for unity apart from the Church and apart from the incarnation. And so there's the epistemological revolt, which is the knowing where religion kind of becomes an idea or a thought. And then ultimately it ends with the fifth revolt, which is the social revolt, where 
uh, th- that's really the era in which we live. So it sounds like what something that you are are laying out in the book is that not only is the Genesis story um, true for us understanding God's relationship to for God and creation, God and our relationship to Him, so God and and man, um, and us understanding who we are. I, maybe I'm using the wrong word here in a second, but you're also kind of proposing it as also anagogically true in that it it also tells a story or lays out in a kind of kernel form what is to come in human history. Um, because you're what you're describing is that yes. that lie and Adam and Eve's desire to turn away from who they really are and what reality is and instead listen to the serpent, that actually has played out in over the course of human history as you demonstrate in the book with those five eras. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. That's exactly it. And you I, know, the serpent's lie ultimately is, you know, God isn't good. He doesn't, his will isn't in accord with his nature. Right. And what he's really telling, he's, the serpent says to Adam and Eve, or says to Eve, uh, he's holding out on you, you know. Uh, what he's afraid of is if you eat the fruit, then you could determine what's good and evil, because mm-hmm. God's the one who determines what's good and evil, not his goodness, okay? And then you see that that lie kind of grow through human history, where uh, God's will becomes detached from who he is, so, uh, for example, I, I go into Islam, where there, Islam encounters Greek thought, and there are parties in Islam that start proposing that God's will is somehow detached from his nature, that God can arbitrarily will anything. Mm-hmm. And so we can't know God through creation. The only way to know God is through divine revelation. So we follow him only through the Quran. You know, mm-hmm. that's one way you can know Allah. And then there's experts. You you need clerics to interpret the Quran, and so you become more and more distant from God. And that line of thought goes into William Ockham, and then nominalism, then Martin Luther uh, espouses it, and then it goes into Protestantism. And you know, it's just let me yeah, let me slow there. you slow you down there because I, <laughs> I I felt like reading the book that you kind of made um, back in the. 12th century, 13th century, um, that was sort of the, the hinge in many ways for the whole story, and that's the the rise of um, Averroes and then those two, those two gentlemen that you mentioned. So let's, let's linger some time in the 12th and the 13th century. So who was Averroes, and what, what's his part in this story? Yeah, um, well, uh, what happens is, and this, and this is why I kind of go into the prehistory of Christianity. Right. When the Jews encountered Greek philosophy, it fit almost like a hand in gloves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were there were errors, but by and large, it it uh, enabled uh, the Jews to have even deeper insight into God. When Islam encounters uh, uh, Aristotle, it's a train wreck because uh, Islamic revelation is defective. It doesn't fit with ideas of justice and things like that. So so there's a reaction within Islam. One uh, wants to embrace it, almost to uh, 
kind of puts Islamic revelation in second place, where the other just wants to make God so sovereign that God can do anything, and therefore philosophy is meaningless. And both are really destructive. And where Averroes comes in is he kind of proposes that, well, revelation's for the rank of file, the people that really don't know very much. And, and he was really one of these Islamic experts? I'm sorry. Yes. yes okay. Yeah, he's an Islamic expert. Um, and, he, and he proposes that philosophy is really for the, the kings, the leaders. So he separates faith and reason, okay, Islamic revelation and reason. And so there's like a two-tiered effect. And so when Averroes' uh, writings and uh, Aristotle's writings start coming into medieval Europe, Christians start adopting what's called a double truth, mm-hmm. that the truth of religion is like in its own separate sphere and the truth about philosophy than another. And uh, that double truth just kind of lingers, even though the Church condemns it and try to fight against it. Uh, it just keeps popping up through history. And like I think that the faith incarnation would be, you have Catholic politicians who will say, I'm Catholic, you know, I'm devout, I go to daily Mass, yet I'm for abortion and for all the things the Church is against. You know, it's that same kind of double truth, that there are two separate spheres, one's reason and the other is revelation. I guess and, that's the uh, genesis also the of the so-called... You know, separation of church and state. Yes, you don't. You don't get that kind of a concept without this first philosophical uh, idea back in the uh, high Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a acorn. You know, it, that's where it starts, and then as it grows, and Protestantism begins to divide, and you have religious wars. Then in the Enlightenment, uh, one solution, they're trying to find a way to unify mankind apart from the Church and the Incarnation. Well, one way is to, it's like John Locke's solution, was to separate the Church or religion from secular life. And uh, he saw that as two, uh, two spheres that uh, there's this iron boundary that can't be transgressed. So you have, uh, and he actually, it's, what's really interesting there is he actually invents the idea of religion. Up until that point, religion was always a virtue Mm. uh, under the heading of justice. Uh, It wasn't like this self-contained religious thing that we do interiorly, you know? Right. Uh, That's that's more of a product of uh, the liberal state, uh, liberal government idea. And so it kind of makes a little safe zone. So you can do all your churchy interior stuff in this zone, and that's fine, just as long as it doesn't encroach upon the secular world you know, where real life happens with commerce and liberty and things like that. Right. And as I note in the books, uh, the book is, you know, the thing is he fails to realize that the things he puts in the secular zone are just as religious, even more religious than the stuff in the religious zone. For example, life. Who determines what is life? When does life begin? How can life uh, be justly ended? Uh, those are religious and philosophical questions. They're not secular questions. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, he kind of makes the safe stone. So he kind of so religious wars are kind of a thing of the past, as long as you keep your religion within your churches. Now let's let's step back again from from Locke because that's the 17th century, um, and I yep. wanted to. I think a, a key idea in your in your book, this is a philosophical school that you keep coming back to, and that's nominalism. 
And you identify that not only with William of Ockham, who it's primarily associated with, but also Marsilius of Padua. Not St. Anthony of Padua, but Marsilius of yeah. Padua. Who are these two gentlemen? These are these are philosophers at the University of Paris, I believe, in the uh, in the High Middle Ages. What were what was their thought? How did it relate to Averroes? And what's this idea? What's nominalism? Yeah, um, yeah, great question. Uh, it all happens with a huge conflict between the Pope and Ludwig of Bavaria, and uh, uh, that's a fascinating story. I, I get a short thing, but anyway. Uh, Ludwig starts a, um, uh, a torched earth policy in his war against the church. And so he enlists a couple of intellectuals. Uh, Marsilius of Padua uh, was part of the University of Paris. Uh, he probably it was a Latin adverse. Um, and, but he wrote a book where he posits that the state, it's kind of the state runs on reason. And then religion is kind of something that's tacked on that confirms what we know by reason. Okay, so the so state he, runs he, on reason, and then religion is something that confirms, that's faith that confirms what we know by reason. That's what you said? Yes, Okay. That's exactly. Okay. So you can see it's kind of like Abro's position uh, of the, you know, the the two spheres. Right. Uh, the, Double you know, truth the again. With philosophy. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and so Ludwig of Bavaria protects him, and he helps him publish, get his ideas out in Europe. Uh, William of Ockham's a little different. He was a Franciscan. He was also, he escapes the condemnations in Paris, but he ends up at, at the papal court in Avignon. And uh, he was enlisted by the poor Franciscans to argue their case uh, with the Pope. The poor Franciscans said that um, in order to follow the gospel purely, you have to divest yourself of all material goods. Mm. And the Catholic answer to that is, well, that's not true, because in the Old Testament, God actually legislates, you know, property and things like that. So it is a good. So William of Ockham's solution is that God can change his mind. He can call something good in the Old Testament, and he can call something evil in the New Testament. Mm. Because ultimately, God's will is not constrained by his nature, just like we've learned in Islam. Right. Well, anyway, he uh, flees from Avignon because he is going to be condemned, and he ends up in the lap of Ludwig of Bavaria. And so it was Occam, and what's known as Occamism, that kind of becomes a new philosophy where things there. Well, I don't want to get too technical, but he denies that. That's okay. Go get technical. Go ahead. Okay. He, de he de denies there's universals, you know, things like uh, triangularity, greenness, um, things that we could group things together. He says mm -hmm. those don't really exist in reality. It's things our minds used to categorize. What really exists is just particular things. Okay. Those okay. are really what exists. And so um, that and the idea of volunteerism, where God can will something apart from his nature, he could change things. Um, that ultimately, um, again, it's kind of like that acorn that eventually develops today where, you know, now it's, it's down to individual. Everything becomes atomized. Everything's individualistic. Education isn't looking at the whole of creation. It's really now just specialties and diving deeper and deeper into particular ideas. You know, so everything, it, 
that optimism or nominalism touches gets atomized, it gets individualized. Mm -hmm. And so if you put those two ideas together, you really come up with something that we are experiencing today, especially with gender ideology, right? where it's, it's not what you are biologically, it's wherever you will. You know, what you will is what's real. And it ends up that every individual can will whatever you want. And there's nothing that really links us together like biology. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, so because so, how I yeah. was how I've I'm not a philosopher by training, um, but how I've had some exposure to nominalism or had it explained to me is it's this idea of n- humans uh, name things. They put names on things or label things. And, and that's what makes the thing what it is. It's not that there's any kind of objective essence. So it's this uh, it's the subjective versus the objective idea that it's not it's not the objective reality of the thing that's making the imprint on the human reason it's the subject the human subject who's imposing meaning on what's outside of him is that is that another way of of kind yeah, of that's, understanding that's actually it a much better way to explain it than i did <laughs> yeah exactly so instead of instead of universals what they are is just names things we put on to yeah. help categorize things that are really individuals. Right. And so then that would, that makes sense that at the connection that you're making with gender ideology, that if, if a person, if a biological male wants to suddenly name himself as a woman, well, that's, that's perfectly fine. If they're coming out of this nominalistic, um, worldview, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because there is no real thing as male or female or, you know, whatever, it's just names, social constructions that we kind of foist on biology, but right. it's not really there. Right. I, and I, I, and I, Luther does the same thing, too, by the way. He, you know, he'll say that what, what we're made righteous by God is God calls us righteous, yes. but we really aren't righteous. So you can see, you know, it's really through Protestantism and nominalism that this idea really spreads. Can we stick with William of Ockham for just a, a minute more, and then we'll we'll move into Absolutely. the Protestant Revolution? Um, what was the? Could you go over again? What was the kind of problem that Ockham was trying to grapple with, or or maybe another way of asking it is, do you see Ockham as was he a man of goodwill? Was he was he trying to come up? Was he trying to come up with an answer to a problem? that that philosophers or theologians were grappling with or or was he doing this from a place of uh, trying to cause trouble or or not doing it in good faith does that make sense yeah yeah well it, you know it's hard to read a person's heart especially when they lived centuries ago uh my impression is i think it was honest i think he okay. was just trying to do philosophy and uh he um of course he deviates from uh uh, you know, Christian philosophy in a way, in a way he's kind of trying to solve a problem. And by trying to solve it, he actually makes the problem a lot worse. Right. So I, I think, I think he was a good soul who meant well. Right. But in that particular time and place, it actually made things a lot worse. Okay. That, that has been my, what I've read about him has, has been that there are some philosophical and theological questions that he was trying to resolve um, and this is this is what he came up with. So it sounds like here's an example of unintended consequences as time yeah. unfolds for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so 
we mentioned uh, Luther, the Protestant Revolution. Um, how does how does the Protestant Revolution spill into? Um, how does it create a world where people don't don't need faith anymore? Because one of the one of the points of the Protestant Revolution was to make um, faith alone. Um, faith based on scripture, uh, personal interpretation, the, 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 the individual Christian and their kind of ownership of their faith, for lack of a better word. How does that, how does that create a world where faith is sidelined, where people don't, don't need to have faith in God or don't think that they yeah, do? Yeah. How does it create secularism? To talk about that. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the form of nominalism. It tends to boil things down to individuals. It atomizes things. And you also have uh, faith becomes no longer my assent to the witness of the historic church, the bride of Christ, how she witnessed Christ. With Luther, faith becomes interior. Mm -hmm. It's belief in what God has done for me. So Mm -hmm. it's a reflexive faith. And that's really what's operative, is that he did it for you, and that's that's the key. So it becomes interior, individualistic, and um, and also, in a sense, is somewhat incar- anti-incarnational, because the historic church becomes radically redefined. You know, apostolic succession and things like that are thrown out. And when you move from Luther onwards, like through Zwingli and Calvin, it really becomes anti-incarnational, where material things no longer uh, mediate God's grace. You know, it's Christ's humanity that manifested his divinity, right? So it's through his humanity that we participate in the life yeah. of God. Yeah. But uh, but through Kelvin and Swingley, they started looking at material things and sacramentals and sacraments as things almost that are impeding our relationship with God. So Kelvin strips the church of sacred time, sacred space, uh, because he thinks that really it's one's interior beliefs and God, you know, that it's just this very personal interior invisible relationship that's that really has no material spatial time connection. Um, and then from that, ultimately, so what what is religion? Well, it gets boiled down to that religion is just a mere set of propositions that you assent to things that you believe. Mm. And and what happens when there's these religious wars break out between Catholics and Protestants and Protestants and Protestants is that uh, it's over propositions. Do you believe in the real presence? Do you not believe in the real presence? Do you believe in free will? Do you not believe in free will? Um, so what happens is people start trying to search for a solution to all these conflicts. And deism was one of those solutions. They said, well, why have all these propositions? You could boil it down to maybe five or six, and we could unite not only all Christians, but everybody, because we could say you need to believe in, you know, a transcendent being who uh, will punish uh, punish evil, reward good, and we could all unite on that. We don't need public revelation. You certainly don't need the externals of religion. It's just purely an intellectual sense of these things. Hmm. And uh, and that's where, you know, religion suddenly becomes kind of an idea. It's no longer this community that's organically, eucharistically united to Christ that uh, is historic. 
it's really just the individual's interior dispositions uh, that ultimately matter. And then in my book, I, I chronicle where in America, uh, you have this conversionism that erupts during the Second Great Awakening. Right. Where, yeah, we're um, basically, it's this experience that that's how you know that you're that you're justified, that you're saved. And so it doesn't matter what church you belong to. It doesn't even matter what your beliefs are. But if you hear the gospel, quote unquote, and you have some sort of experience, then that shows you are part of the true church, even though you may be a Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic. And uh, so religion gets boiled down to like this interior idea that is disconnected from history, disconnected from externals, and it's purely internal. And once, like I said, once Christianity is reduced down to an idea, then who's to say there aren't other ideas and better ideas out there? Because an idea is an idea. And uh, from there, it's interesting, right after the Second Great Awakening, as as you know, because I've listened to your series, which is very good. People need to listen to it on uh, American experience. Oh, thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, great. And I love how it kind of deep, it dovetails into the book a little bit. Yeah, it know? does. And that's that's what I meant by this is a question that's been of interest to me for so long is what is the intellectual genealogy of how the American church found itself in the place that it is, you know, today in, in 20, 2020? Um, yeah. 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 So after the Second Great Awakening, there's alternatives. You know, how do we unite everybody so you have uh, the search for new public revelation with the Mormons. That comes out of the Second Great Awakening. You have right. the New Age movement. You have Spiritism. You have Pe- Pentecostalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, utopian societies that are just purely secular or, uh, you know, um, transcendentalism. Right. You know, all that right. stuff. Kind of, it's it's like man's search for unity apart from the incarnation. Ultimately, and yeah. What it is is. What it is really, we're shrinking back from reality and trying to find a kind of spiritual interior thing to unite us. And of course, you know, anything that's not God doesn't exist. You know? <laughs> Correct. It's just a, it's just pure fantasy. Well, so, let, uh, let me ask you to pause yeah. there for just a second, Gary. Uh, we've got about ten, about five minutes left in our conversation. Uh, Okay. We're listening. We're talking to Gary Mashuda, author of the new Revolt Against Reality. You can get it from uh, shop.catholic.com or anywhere that fine books are sold. Um, you you do such a such a good job of uh, kind of everything comes to a head in your book in the United States. Uh, the last several, I'd say, the last hundred pages, a lot of it is concerned with uh, social and intellectual developments in the United States. And I was particularly impressed with how you drew together the social gospel movement of the late 19th century, the Second Vatican Council, and the 60s revolution, the personal and the sexual revolution, and the the social revolution to some degree of the 60s. As we wrap up here, tell people how you title those together, because most things that I read a lot of people don't tie those things together, and and they should be tied together. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and that's, I think, some unique contributions the book makes. Uh, basically, my theory is that you have this 
the, the one thing that did unite all Protestants together was their opposition to Catholicism. <laughs> and True. so from Martin Luther, you have uh, this righteous rebel, mm-hmm. that, you know, that he's going to stand against the, the church no matter what. And then the search for doctrinal purity that divides Protestantism. Right. And I have a really weird take on Vatican II. I think Vatican II kind of pulls the rug out of uh, Protestant identity that no longer the Catholic Church is viewed as this great foe. Yes. And it's either you lose your identity or you have to find it someplace else. And what I think happened for, uh, you know, you have to remember, Catholicism is a minority in the United States. That's right. So we're really affected by Protestantism. That this righteous rebel in search for doctrine purity in the 60s became transformed after Vatican II to uh, the righteous rebel, and also the search for social purity, mm-hmm. where priorities were moved from propositions and in, in, uh, dogmas to social uh, difficulties and propositions. And, and there's a kind of fusion that occurs between one's identity and one's struggle. And so if, if who you are and what you are is the struggle you're engaged in, you can never allow victory, and you can never allow defeat, because you'll be obsolete if either one happens. Mm-hmm. So we just end up on this constant treadmill of mm-hmm. running from one thing to another in order to maintain our identity as these, you know, righteous rebels fighting for social purity. The way I've and often I, put it is that yeah. the the diversity office at a university will never shut down. Its its uh, its job will never be over. <laughs> Because I'm not saying that cynically, I'm saying that, you know, realistically, because of the the philosophical basis that it exists upon, just like you said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and what happens, it just continues to atomize and degrade. And now nominalism is no longer just a religious phenomenon. Nominalism, I think, is now in the secular sphere. So you have these Weird secular things like uh, uh, Justice Kennedy's uh, mystery of life mm-hmm. opinion that anybody, you know, what is true liberty? It's to uh, define your own existence and all these other things. You know, it's uh, we just get more and more divorced from reality and this this kind of nominalism nominalistic nightmare. So I, I know that the last chapter of the book, you try to point out some, some shoots of uh, the re assertion of reality. Um, I was going to ask you to kind of leave it on. It's, this is not as hopeful of a question to leave it on, but uh, you chart a long course for how reality um, slipped away from our grasp or how we revolted against it. It was a long, so many, many centuries. Um, would seem that many it's going to take many, many centuries to reverse that revolt. What, what do you think? Ah, that's a good question. Um, you know, when I, I actually ended the book uh, the with uh, the end were basically the epidemic of loneliness. I thought mm-hmm. it was too dark. Yes. So I have reality strikes back. Yes. You know, the thing about nominalism is that it's fighting against reality. Ultimately, reality wins because God wins. Right. Because there's no other alternative. So Catholicism is going to win. So I added a chapter, which I called uh, Reality Strikes Back, where right. there are signs of hope. And, uh, and actually, what's cool is this is, I wrote this a couple of years ago, and there's been lots of developments where 
it has a predictive power to it that some things have continued mm-hmm. in the right direction since I wrote it. Okay, good. So, you know, God, there will be victory in the end, how soon it will be and how it will come. That's why I wrote the book, to help Catholics start the conversation about you know, how do we try to back? Well, I just want to, I want to compliment you on adding your voice to helping us have more historical perspective on how we ended up here and how, and the, and the, specifically the American environment that we exist in, uh, because I think that that's, that's just crucial. And uh, it's really been enjoyable talking to you. Please go out and get the book, guys. It's uh, Revolt Against Reality by Gary Mashuda. You can get it at Catholic Answers Press shop.catholic.com or anywhere that fine books are sold. We're going to let Gary go now to get to his radio show. Check it out. It is on Mother Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful. Powerful. I was close. Uh, (laughs) Thanks so much, Gary. Check it out. Gary Mishuda, so long. Thank you, Gary. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Dennis. You were there lurking in the background. Any, uh, we got about five minutes left. Lurking. Um, sneaking. I wasn't sneaking. Anything else you like want to, you want to share with the, with the, ki- with the, with the listeners? I almost said the kids, the, the, kids. the listeners. Uh, I really enjoyed that. He, uh, he was very kind to compliment me on the, the two shows that I did with, um, Judy Como on the American Catholic Odyssey. That's nice. Yeah. It, it, just a fascinating interview. I, I think the the takeaway that I keep going back to is the the one behind all of this uh, revolt against reality is is the father of lies. You know, mm-hmm. it's through the, throughout all the ages, whether whether our current administration and those that are are claiming to be Catholic um, uh, by their word by their by their label, but not necessarily by their actions, right? Whether they know it or not, you know, and 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 it's on both sides of the spectrum, you know, whatever po- political party you are, there are quite a few of people that we could see are being influenced by the evil one and, and their actions, and they may not even know it, mm-hmm. you know. They may really think they're trying to do what's good, and I, I, mm-hmm. I think that's something I need to constantly take into awareness uh, to help me pray for them mm-hmm. instead of wish them ill. I think another, <laughs> which is something. I, I think something else that's kind of on the opposite side of that coin, um, and I brought it up to mm-hmm. him about right. William o- William of Ockham is is that idea of unintended consequences. We may be doing something in the here and now for mm-hmm. a particular reason, and there's no way that we can see what the what the consequences in a hundred years, right. two hundred years from now are going to be. Um, so we have to pray for wisdom, for prudence mm-hmm. in our own actions and remain humble in, in why we're doing things, the, the things and saying the things that we're doing. Right. Um, because this book demonstrates that, um, like he quotes Aristotle from saying, a small a small error uh, over time can lead to... Big consequences. Big consequences. Yeah, yes. it, it, is, it is something very sobering, you know, to think about. So uh, I think that's why it's... Um, so important that we focus on saying the divine mercy chaplet so often because, you know, have mercy on us, O oh Lord, for the things that we don't even know that we're doing. Yeah. That that can have a big impact down the road. And and pray that we do things in the here and now that will have a, a beneficial effect 
to so many down the road, not not a detrimental one. That's right. That's right. But I just, I do want to say, boy, if you are somebody out there that's looking for what are the intellectual, the ideas behind everything that uh, you see out in society that doesn't make sense, why do people think this way? Uh, mm-hmm. This is a very good primer on it, and it's very uh, it's very easy to read. There's a lot of a lot of names and terms, but it's still easy to keep up with. Highly recommend it. Revolt against reality by Gary Mashuda from uh, Catholic Answers Press. He's shop. a great Catholic dot com. He's a great host. I mean, I've, I've guessed <laughs> you're yeah. a great host. But yeah, yeah, it and and you were saying he's our three time guest. I, I'm wondering, Deacon Mike may have been a three-time guest with Megan when she ran the show. So okay. maybe they're neck and neck, you know, host and, and guest. So uh, old style, he might be up there. And then on the new style, he he's probably one of our, certainly one of our few oh, yeah. three-timers. Well, he's he's um, he's a great guest. So I appreciate you doing that. And he's very productive. That. He's not going to stop writing books. So he'll probably be, be back on again. <laughs> very nice. Well, I'll let you wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to Red Sea Roundup. You'll be able to catch this uh, on podcast. Check us out on wherever you get your podcast from. And we will remind you to check in with us next week. Bye-bye.